From weapons and tactics to supply chains and game theory, what does the future of modern warfare look like? In this conversation, I speak with Major John Spencer, who served for 24 years as a US infantry soldier and who is now Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute at West Point. From combat tours in Iraq to research visits in Nagorno-Karabakh and Ukraine, John is able to bridge the lived personal experience and tactics of a soldier to the large-scale strategy and geopolitics of war. I highly recommend you check out his Urban Warfare Project podcast, linked below. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast. If you enjoy what I'm doing, please consider subscribing, liking, and sharing. And now, here is Major John Spencer. I hope you enjoy. Escape Sapiens. John Spencer, welcome on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> so today what I want to do is I want to understand urban warfare from the perspective of someone who studies it as a phenomena, right? sort of academically. But uh, so I want to have a sort of the, the large scale picture by the end of this. But, you know, your background is sort of interesting because you were also a soldier. And so, so I want to start somewhere a little bit more personal. And so to begin with, your first time in combat was at the start of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. You, you, you were part of a heavy drop. And what I want to ask you is sort of what it feels like that first time you're in combat. Because especially with that sort of an action, you're surrounded by some of the baddest people on the planet, right? So there must be a massive adrenaline boost. Um, and this is what you train for. So there, there must be some level of excitement. But at the same time, people might die. You could become injured. It, it's it's real. And and so uh, as someone who hasn't been involved in combat and probably won't ever be in combat, hopefully, are you able to explain sort of what that mix of emotions feels like, you know, to, to sort of someone who's outside of the game? Yeah, I mean, it's that's that's of course going to be a challenging war is an experience for sure with we often say it's you know it's long hours of boredom punctuated by extreme fear and violence uh so not all combat is is what we see in the movies uh, which are just capturing you know the intensity of the moments i had the unique advantage of you know i went to war in 2003 but i i, I joined the army in 1993 so I'd already served in the army for 10 years. So I had that unique advantage of being trained for what we thought war would be. And interesting about, you know, jumping into combat is that that idea of control as in I've, I've trained for this, I'm ready for this, you know, like a football player going into a, a big game. But what happens in war is that you, I mean, you can't train for everything. You can't be prepared for everything. And you can't really expose people to that level of, of intensity in, in training, but we, we sure do try. And that's kind of the, the thinking behind military training is to kind of deconstruct the, both the psychological, physiological rigors of combat so that when the soldier does experience it, he's ready. Mm -hmm. I mean, I jumped in as a, a leader too. So I was responsible. So really my experiences in that first was more of that weight of responsibility, right? wasn't necessarily like fearing you know, getting into a fight per se uh, or, or getting into the, this massive battle. It was the responsibilities I had. So I had 40 people that I was responsible for, you know, going into in the initial invasion. Mm 
So as I walked through, those were my fears. It was fears of failing in those moments. And actually there was a time, one of right before our biggest firefight that we, our first firefight, you know, first engagement with, with an enemy, the company commander had walked around and, and asked people, were they scared? And I thought it was a real odd question um, because I wasn't scared at all. I was not scared of the enemy. I thought I was, I was trained. I was ready. You know, we do all these things of, of almost taking out the thinking in war. And we, we, the military works really hard at that. So that way, when you execute uh, it, it's executing things you feel like you have control of. And it's really when you feel like you don't have control that some of those negative emotions start start coming into effect. And one of the soldiers said, yes, he was scared. I, th- I thought that was odd because I was only scared of failing in my job, failing in my soldiers. I never feared the enemy. Uh, but then you fast forward a few years and then you have uh, IEDs, so road, roadside mm-hmm. bombs, which everybody's heard about, right? What I found in that even in 2003, since we started experiencing those later, there's no control over a roadside bomb. It's almost like a you know a gruesome roll of a dice. It's either going to hit you or it's not. Even if you're you're told to look for it, you know, the enemy eventually figured out ways to. There's no way unless there's somebody with clearing equipment in front of you. I found that as a interesting aspect of modern war that is really hard to prepare people for, but it had a significant psychological impact on us. Is especially when I went back in 2008. What do you do for just waiting to get blown up? Uh, mm-hmm. It almost deconstruct. It almost is 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 the opposite of everything you've ever trained for. Which is, if you do these things, you'll lead to success. If you rely on your soldier, your people to your left and right, the roadside bomb was really a, a way to kind of pick that apart and, and really, you know, had an impact. So, did you find it more difficult in terms of fear than to return in two thousand eight? since you'd already had experience with IEDs or or was it not like that no when i so the the first iterations of those roadside bombs weren't you know weren't as frequent weren't as powerful we we took hits from roadside bombs in 2000 late 2003 you know maybe a few soldiers were hurt by the time i returned in 2008 thanks to things like iranian intelligence the the roadside bombs had completely changed they were no longer just you know military ordnance like uh, a mortar round and artillery round now they are these things that could basically punch punch through a tank mm. some tanks not all tanks but if you got hit by one of these you weren't surviving uh or you were you wouldn't be significantly maimed and, and so it increased it actually increased the fear so it was a lot different and i was to be you know i know we'll talk about this but i also my second deployment was straight into Baghdad, straight into much more urbanized terrain and the complexity that causes. So, but in all of that, I, I still feared failing in leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at that point, I was now in charge of you know, over 150 people um, trying to find an elusive enemy. So it was really a completely different war with a completely different army. And I was a completely different person. So is there, you talk about being ready through training. Is there sort of anything that you wished you had known before going in that first time that sort of you didn't get out of training or it was, was there anything like that? I mean, the first time I could say 
probably not. I was I really felt ready for the details of that I would be given. Uh, my second one was completely, you know, just a you know night and day compared to my first tour. You know, invading army with a a uniformed enemy. Although the insurgency started, and, and we really transitioning into nation building, uh, mm-hmm. which soldiers aren't trained for, and it's actually a there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance when you have your ideals of war, then you get sent to war. You're like, okay, you're going to, in the daytime, you're going to rebuild this city, but at night you're still going to, you know, try to find the bad guys and, and, and all of that. So I went back and when I went back later, I felt more holistically unprepared for the, the job that I would be doing versus my first tour. I was an infantry platoon leader and I was doing infantry platoon leader stuff. I felt like I was very well trained for that that year. So did you see a change in in the civilian population between those two deployments? Like for instance, were you able to communicate well and did you get some impression of whether or not you were liked by the local population and how that might have changed across time? Sure, I mean in 2003 I was welcomed by parades. I mean I was in the north, right? So I was it was where Shia populated areas that were, you know, basically massacred and, and treated really badly by the Saddam regime. So I literally was welcomed by parades in places like Erbil and, and other places. And then like any population, there was a wait and see kind of mentality of wait and see what the Americans would do. And this is that application of that trying to teach your soldiers that you can create more enemy by your actions we learn this you, you learn this human nature right war is very very human nature but most people were either indifferent in that first year or very supportive um and then the level of kind of aggression and hate and dislike was not as as predominant when i went back in 2008 i, mean, I met such amazing people that understood why we were there but there was also people that either just wanted us to leave or were in opposition. But really at that point, the opposition was against the government. Uh, and this is the the difficulty of taking American soldiers and putting them in a foreign country and saying, okay, now I want you to build, build them a government, you know, build them a nation. Uh, everything from making sure the trash runs to forming a democratic system that isn't quite their system so then there's the frustration with them and and with you and controlling power which you know these are all the things that i was exposed to in 2008 that i I just wasn't trained for and in reflection there's you know we made mistakes that made people angry and made people not like us and then you know but some of it does get to the root of just being a good person and and Mm -hmm. human rights and doing the right thing that people, it's a universal understanding, right? It's a universal understanding. If people know you're there for good reasons, good intentions, then it's it's a supportive population, even if they're frustrated or don't like the government that's being established and things like that. Um, and that's that was very specific to my area. Don't you know? That's night and day. Also, to what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, this this aspect of building nations is a very complex and and uh even hard to imagine situation i guess you also mentioned that iran had been involved in improving the ieds uh that the insurgents were using 
And, you know, it's not just the states and the coalition there. Uh, the, the waters are being muddied a little bit by Iran and other actors who don't really want things to go well. Did, did you find that that had a big impact, sort of the other external forces uh, and, and those sort of power dynamics leading to the civilian population decoupling from or, or being less uh, enthusiastic about the American intervention? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, most the biggest enemy were enemies su- supported, funded, trained or whatever by some foreign actor, right? Proxy warfare is nothing new. Um, and we were fighting in it as we're trying to create a situation that is stable enough for ideally for you to leave is the position. And there's a, a huge aspect of self-determination in all of this. Um, you know, in, in Iraq specifically, they're the, the biggest evolving threat wasn't the threat to us forces. It was a threat to security as in civil security. And it, and those become the measures of performance and measures of effectiveness is how much violence there is. Um, you met, you can measure democracy. You can measure, you know, all these other forms of services and things like that. But really where Iraq was at the point of breaking was really sectarian violence, right? To, strongly advocated forces clashing against each other and we are just in the middle of that both sides being um reinforced by foreign support right so whether that's men weapons and equipment intelligence whatever and that was the fight that in in iraq specifically we were fighting was sectarian violence right stopping them from killing each other uh, and we're just in the middle of that. So sometimes people are attacking us, but usually they're attacking each other and, and because they're resistant in this new form of government, all the different power sharing agreements that is way beyond my pay grade. Um, but having that level of understanding, understanding, you know, it, it's really hard stuff. It's not, war is not easy. War is never simple. And even the hardest things will, um, even the simplest things will become hard, but the, the battles that we were fighting after both Iraq and Afghanistan, after the first few months, we're not, we're not fights against enemies. There were fights against all of these different powers and different structures trying to get to what a new nation would look like. Mm-hmm. And then, and for the, there's three, this, you know, after now being a professor, at a at a military college i you know i had i i might have this understanding as a junior leader but clearly not not at that level there's three populations in in all wars there's the militaries which are fighting Mm -hmm. there's the politicians that sent them there to do whatever the job is they've been assigned to do and then there's the populations that either support or do not support them And I found that it just is an amazing model to look at wars in general, whether it was even the U.S. experiences in war. I mean, it was us fighting bad people, very in some aspects, evil people. But more importantly, it was the political goals of both sides, above whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, America, the coalitions, the political goals, and are they reasonable um, to be achieved and then eventually it becomes the will of the people, which military theorists write about. But w- would the American population support 
wars for those political goals forever for um would the the populations in the places you're fighting support you being there um that that three population model is is such an amazing it's very old but an amazing way to look at wars and the goals that have been given to the military a lot of military get frustrated at what does winning look like did we win was it worth it without even looking at it through the prisms of the political goals that which were given to the entire mm. military at th- that moment and goals do change so so what happens this is sort of a little bit out of, out of left field but what happens when there is a disagreement between the military and and politicians so so on any, on does it really does it depend on the type of disagreement does does one take priority over the other you know when 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 is the military able to put down its foot and say no this is the way we're going uh this is this is our domain yeah so that's complex in every country's system right every country has a system of uh either civil civilian control over military and lessons learned over history and establishing a system on which that level of advice. So like the, I can talk about the U S military system, right? So we have political leadership, uh, even civilian control over the, all the different military branches. And then we have a military advisor to the president himself that sits on the national security council who can say, sir, this is a really bad idea. Um, or who the whoever the head general is fighting the war for, who gets brought back and you can say, you know, sir, based on my recommendation. And there's been some good books on where in in our own history, the U.S. history, where that that feedback has been has has failed, right? That feedback on mm-hmm. what you're asking me to do is not not it can't be accomplished, or I need this or that. I it's a it's a very complex, but a very most people think that it's. It's politicians sending soldiers off to war with no understanding of what's being asked of them. As as a student and have working have worked at the highest levels of our government, I know that that's not just not true, right? We have a national security council. We've had past national security advisors, which sometimes were active duty generals. Uh, if you look at like General McMaster, General uh, Colin Powell. The, that level of best military advice is what we call it to political leaders is is there and after hard learned lessons in, in past failures or past wars things like that so it's a constantly evolving system where the military is in position to give best military advice and to make strong recommendations before a war starts as the war is developing um it, it is a human endeavor so the humans are valuable so there there have been bad generals who give bad advice but this is where i get into kind of urban warfare like eventually the military must execute the orders that they're given now there is there is there is of course ethical moral um as a u.s officer i signed i i committed to an oath to the constitution not to Mm -hmm. the president or the political leaders so there have been times in history where the military leader says i am i will not follow that order because it's not within our constitutional values, right? And that's why army officers um, committed to an oath of the constitution. And and there have been examples in recent history, right? Like uh, Colonel Alexander Vindman, you know, you know, military officers who say that this is not right. And then there's, again, those three populations and, and they can go public and say, um, what we're doing is not right. Uh, 
but eventually if it's a if it's an constitutional ethical moral executable order militaries you you follow orders and sometimes mm-hmm. people get disgruntled like i don't agree with this war like you're serving in the military you know this is this is the mission you've been given and that sometimes that is called can do right so the u.s army is called you give me the mission i can do it uh it, it's really complex but I, i'm a very strong advocate like eventually that in their examples like first battle of fallujah like look which is i think is one of the best examples in the first battle of fallujah when four american citizens were killed it hits international media it impacts all those populaces and the president and the national security council and the national security apparatus says execute a mission in response to these four civilian deaths and the u.s military's general said i don't agree with that 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 will go very badly sir i recommend you do not mm. tell me to do that mm. which is which is a great example of responding and then the the president and the the highest level general said i understand your your opposition execute mm-hmm. you salute you execute that mission even if it's long as it's a constitutional moral ethical lawful order then you execute hmm it feels a little bit like how lawyers sometimes work for people who may have done terrible things in some you know there's the job to do but i wanted to ask you know you just made me think so you're talking about legal orders there um and and being able to say no i don't think that order is legal and, and and pulling away from it but what happens is there any leeway when a legal order is given and you feel that it will get you killed like there's 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 no ifs or buts if i walk out there i will be killed and even though it's legal i will not do that what what happens does that happen or or is this is there any leeway there there's absolutely leeway in the feedback in our system right not in all military systems right um specifically the russian system um, there have been plenty of cases where a senior leader gave an order which would result in the in clear death of every soldier there. Uh, and there has been feedback. It can't all you know, it, the echelon, the context, it all matters. Yeah, absolutely there is leadway and this is our system to to be able to respond on I do not think that is a wise decision. And that feedback loop, um, but there is have been times in history where a seemingly un, unachievable mission has been directed and you you execute that mission because you understand it um it, it and for as an instructor as a professor as a analyst you have to give context right give examples um yes absolutely you have the ability to say i'm not just going to die for no reason uh or i'm not going to allow my soldiers to just be sacrificed for no reason and this is why the u.s military is really strong on giving a purpose for the mission being given so mm-hmm. like um a really great example you know chamberlain at gettysburg if you don't know that story you know the battle of gettysburg there's one moment where uh a a small unit is told to hold um a part of a little round top a hilltop um, it's seemingly a suicidal mission, and the commander knows that. But he has been told that if you do not hold 
the entire army will be destroyed because our flank will be now exposed. He, in a matter of minutes, explains that to his soldiers, and they all agree, and they all understand this is suicide, and we will all die. But if we don't, the entire rest of us die. And I think that from my research and what I put into my, my book called Connected Soldiers was, you know, that's the higher level of serving in the military, right, is understanding that you're willing to lay your life down for your fellow soldiers, for your nation, for you know, for this complex reason. In that moment, yes, that, that was a lawful order, uh, but likely to end in the death of everybody there, but there's a purpose. So just having people go out and commit suicide for no purpose, yes, that 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 would be really bad. Um, and I'm trying to think of a situation where there's absolutely a feedback loop to to un- if you're soldiers or you're you're a junior leader or you're a general, and you you don't understand the why would I do that? Why would I sacrifice this blood and treasure? Um, then there's always the opportunity to say, so I don't agree with that. I'm not doing that. It would have to be with an an amazing amount of understanding, and sometimes that's the understanding you have to give to the senior leader, like mm-hmm. the the who may be saying, "Do this," and like, uh, don't you you understand that there's a machine gun position on that hill that you're asking me to to attack? Um, so it's it's complex, and I find it's always easier, for, like you know, as a any student or or professor, to give an example mm-hmm. to the concept that we're talking about in terms of uh having soldiers know what's going on sort of having the larger picture i want to get some sort of an understanding of how important that is uh in the u.s military so just to give an example when you would in your first drop your heavy drop i also want to ask what it's like to be a part of a heavy drop because that (laughs) that must be quite amazing because you drop in vehicles and all sorts of stuff I'm, I'm imagining but before we get into that uh, what did you know what did you know of the mission before you go in and how far ahead of time do you know and does it matter what level you are and uh, you know you were the platoon leader so you must have known more than the other soldiers or how does that work out there yeah that's a great question it's it's um and now I know more because I've having having studied the operation. But if I look back at the platoon leader, you know, you, you don't want you, there isn't time, there isn't the ability for everybody to know everything. But we have these kind of orders that we do. Uh, um, we call them operations orders, right? And 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 they can apply to daily tasks to jumping into a combat um, zone for an entire war. There'll always be this order. And in the order, it always explains two levels up. So that's about the level you want leaders to know or or soldiers, right? So if you're a private, um, they should know what's going on at least two levels up. So we write these big orders. So as a platoon leader, I knew the overall reason for the Operation Iraqi Freedom. I knew my company's role and my battalion's role in the mission that – that first mission that we were being assigned. But I did have a pretty uh, strong understanding of why we were doing the mission that like the jump in the, in the Northern Iraq. And I was able to communicate that rapidly to our soldiers. Like, this is what we're doing. We're jumping into Iraq to secure the Northern sector of the war so that 
forces in the north do not move south to attack the main effort, which is the fall of Baghdad. I, I had that level, and that's the beauty of our system is that we do care that soldiers know mm-hmm. why they're doing the war, but then also have an understanding and you know, just one level and two levels up of what their their small piece of the pie is. I imagine that also impacts combat effectiveness because if you have a general idea of what you want to do and things go wrong, then maybe you can accommodate and sort of go around the other way. I I, I want to ask, well, if if you have a comment on that, I'd be interested. But I, oh, I'm absolutely, also... yeah, absolutely on that. That's really one of the superpowers of the U.S. military, and and people have traced its history back to other militaries. We call it mission command or. Uh, commander's intent so sometimes it gets lost in the process but actually at the fundamentals of of a a very powerful military that is the ability to because war is always going to mess everything up you know whether it's murphy that we call it or just friction as as some people would call it um everything the enemy gets a vote things are going to change but if you understand the overall intent of the operation it gives soldiers from every echelon amazing um, clarity and to be able to adapt to change everything they're doing if they know why and be able to achieve the intent that's almost like a superpower like hey i had this small little job but i know what why i'm doing this and, and what what that intent is and if it's written correctly it allows for that almost sometimes battle altering uh achievements by junior levels because they understood what the overall goal was. Even if they totally veer off of what they were told to do, they achieved the goal. Hmm. It, it's, uh, and, and is there a big difference between the way the US does that? I imagine most Western powers are quite similar. Uh, later on, I, w- I want to talk about Ukraine a little bit. And I, I noticed that, uh, you know, in the news, people are talking about how a lot of generals have been killed and how this has to do somehow with the way their their military is structured and who knows what and you know how present the generals have to be is is that related to a, just a completely different uh, way the force is structured and what people know or, or is not that not related no no it's absolutely related and in, in the the force structure of an army right so um, not all militaries are structured the same way as in their hierarchy of officers down to non-commissioned officers down to enlisted forces. Um, if you have a very officer-centric military and you don't have the 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 bridges between the different levels, then you do have to have an officer present to issue the orders versus an officer who writes the orders and then it gets implemented through, you know, and either junior officers that you trust or even sergeants and non-commissioned officers who are career-long soldiers in a professional military who then can take those orders and the intent and get the job done. So if you have a very a system that relies on officers like the Russian system, then you will have officers needed at the front lines and present in all kinds of situations where you might not have that in a Western system. Although you know, generals have died in, in wars before, but you won't have that need for it to achieve whatever the goal is because you don't have an, a that type of hierarchy in your force structure. So but before running ahead too far, what is it like to be part of a heavy drop? Because I, 
I just imagine that is mind blowing. You must have. You said you had fifty men under your uh, command. I, I might have gotten that yeah. wrong. And and yeah. so, what are they able to drop? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Do do you are you able to eat the morning of? <laughs> and how do, how do you match up the the equipment with with the personnel? Do you jump in any vehicle or how does that how does that work out? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, it's very it, it's actually very surreal to actually do it for real because you train it at a at a smaller scale, right? I had been airborne for over ten years at that point doing training jumps. When you jump into combat, which actually hasn't happened that many times in our our in the history of airborne forces, um, it's a very massive operation. And even I didn't understand that until you get to an airfield and there's 15 C-17s lined up on an airfield. And just that site alone was, was amazing because I had never seen an airplane that big uh, in training. But to see 15 of them lined up because – we dropped a thousand soldiers in a matter of one minute. Because if you can imagine like in a movie, like a movie of D-Day, you have 15 airplanes flying in unison at staggered levels. And they're hitting one almost like football field drop site. And then you, everybody's dropped at different levels all at the same time in a matter of literally one minute. And they all slowly float to the ground in the middle of the night and you, you really can't see anybody. You can't see anything. So getting everybody on the ground is is pretty fast. But you're you're right. We did also heavy drop some equipment, uh, which unfortunately for us went into a lot of it went into the mud. So you know that first night, those first few hours, you hit the ground hopefully safely. You try to find people. You link up to locations that you know where to go. Um, and mm-hmm. every unit has its their own assembly area where you're assembling, you know, 100, 200 people. And then you're going to move out from there in, in the middle of the night with your rucksacks and, and go out and get in a position to help block. For us, you know, it was an airborne reinforcement. So we were dropping soldiers, like I said, to to create an airborne reinforcement of the northern front of the Iraq war. So we weren't doing it under intense fire because it was a, more or less a secure drop zone, although there was a threat to the aircraft coming into into Iraq and into the airspace. Uh, so we knew we knew we had to get to the ground rapidly. Uh, you know, that night was pretty crazy, just getting a thousand people to where they needed to go in the middle of the night, where you can barely see the hand your hand in front of you without night vision goggles. The next morning, you know you were re making sure you have everybody. So just getting the accountability of your soldiers. But the intent was also to start air landing stuff as well. So we dropped some of the vehicles, but then that next morning, once the entire area was secure, then that airfield we had jumped on, we jumped to secure an air bridge. Sounds a lot like what happened in, in Ukraine. If we talk about this. So that way the next morning, the aircraft can start landing more vehicles and more of the equipment that you're going to need to start actually moving towards the front line, which we did within a couple of days. So that next morning is when we're, we're moving out, you know, maybe later in the day, we're making sure we, we have accountability of everybody policing up injured from the jump. Cause people do get hurt in jumps. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the aircraft are starting to deliver vehicles and we're starting to get linked up with, I actually was a, a vehicle. So I had, 
like 14 combat vehicles assigned to me. And those are my 14 vehicles. So getting accountability and going to the staging area and saying, okay, those are mine and getting my men on those and getting them combat ready and getting ready to move. How, I know it was a secured area, but were you able to freely, I mean, I'm imagining there are situations where the area is not secure and then communication becomes more difficult. Or was this something where you're literally able to just shout at people and there's no sort of worry uh, along those lines? So this has always been an interesting aspect of this jump is that, oh, you jumped into a secure combat area. Like, yeah, I jumped into an area like people have jumped up in the past that other people are already on the ground, like special forces. Uh, we actually had a heavy Peshmerga uh, contingent there that was supporting, securing the outer perimeter. So, yeah, I could talk if I wanted to, you know, at my soldiers. There's no threat of immediate combat at the moment, but we were, we had just jumped into a combat zone. There's definitely the feeling that we were in combat we had mm. just jumped into iraq uh, but the whole point was to jump in secure an air bridge get our equipment actually within a week we're starting to land tanks and things like that and to move rapidly as we could south to engage this iraqi division that we didn't want to move while the attack of baghdad was happening and, and all that worked as as well as it did but yeah i mean i wouldn't say i felt safe and then like hey we're just here that next morning, we definitely felt like we're still, you know, pointed out, not knowing in this feeling of not knowing if an enemy was coming. We're practicing all the training that you had learned, so I was putting my soldiers into at all times with a weapon pointed out, even though we're in a secure area. That that's just good military discipline and practice because you just never know. No, so I, I wasn't. So my interest was more along the lines of just how it's how. Um how everything's organized at that because i I imagine there's just huge amounts of confusion initially because even though you land it sounds you're pretty precise you land within the space of a football field that's pretty impressive at nighttime with a thousand soldiers (laughs) it's probably a few football fields but it's a very a very small area yeah it's very precise very i mean it's amazing feat of um technical capability to be able to do that at that scale um, and then drop everybody in the, that fast with that many aircraft. Mm. Then for us, this is how many years of training to be able to, you know, I hit the ground but to be able to look up and see a plane flying above me to know that's, that's North. I, my assembly area is going to be behind me at this direction and distance and to move there and then assemble even 200 people. Um, that's how this works, right? It's, it's through training and mm-hmm. everybody having their role that you have a thousand people moving in unison, but actually everybody's moving with with a very well-planned, executed, synchronized, separated aspect of how this all happens in a matter of hours. So I want to get into, uh, hopefully later on, uh, if we talk about uh, Ukraine, we can talk about the differences between what happened at Hostomel, you know, the opening stages of uh, the Ukraine war, um, or special operation or whatever we want to call it. But, um, before that, I, I wanted to take a step back, um, and just ask sort of a very basic question, you know, how, how was it that you became interested 
specifically in urban warfare, uh, you know, w- w- was it from your experience? Because I, I mean, you, you did this drop, but you, you're also you had all sort of different experiences. What, what was it that sort of triggered your interest there to go specifically into urban uh, urban warfare study? Yeah, so you know, I might I might not have been interested in urban warfare, but it was definitely interested in me. Um, there was very little that I was doing in Iraq after that first jump that wasn't about urbanized terrain. Um, we, you know, we moved to Erbil, although we were engaged in, in an enemy in the open fields, quickly later we're moving to Kirkuk. And uh, especially my 2008 deployment, I, w- I was a part of a major battle called the Battle of Sadr City that was strictly in dense urban terrain. Not all, not all urban is the same. So there's absolutely the experience of urban warfare as a soldier but then then it took the hold of the academic study so in 2014 i was a part of a a research group that was brand new actually the the head general of the u.s army the chief of staff of the army has established a strategic studies group so almost like a a think tank research center uh brain trust of about 20 civilians officers uh, senior and junior that I just happened to have the chance to apply for, applied for it, made it into the group. And then for a year was told to study uh, a problem that the U S army wasn't ready for. And we ended up focusing on mega cities, which mega cities are cities over 10 million. It's just a number uh, and a certain classification of urbanized terrain. So I learned about how to do research. I learned about critical thinking skills. I learned about, this problem that was urban warfare for an army, even though I had experienced the challenges as an individual soldier, as a commander, you know, as a, at the tactical level is what we call it at the lower level. In 2014, I got introduced to it at a, at the highest level, like how a military plans for operations in a mega city. Um, And I learned a lot from that experience. Well, I went straight from that experience to West Point uh, where I was teaching at the United States Military Academy. So I started teaching, I was teaching tactics and then I was teaching military strategy, like military theory. And I helped create a research center in 2015 with the sole goal of creating new research on modern war, which at that time, modern war was about urban. I fell in love with writing. So one of the first articles that I wrote was about how we use concrete walls in Iraq to achieve a lot of goals. And Mm -hmm. this is almost falling into a research agenda where that that article I wrote about concrete went viral Mm -hmm. and it it was picked up by just hundreds of organizations, National Geographic to Yahoo News. Um, And that gave me the little bit of motivation to one, dive into my experiences in urban warfare dive into some of the study I'd already done with the mega city, mega cities work. And then I, at that point I was hooked and just started digging into it more exposing, you know, as from a researcher, once you identify an area that, that hasn't been covered. Right. So that's kind of the, mm-hmm. the, the work of the PhD is to expose research that hasn't already been done. Well, in urban warfare, I found this, you know, just this treasure trove of stuff that wasn't being covered, hadn't been done because the of the way the militaries of the world are designed, that they they won't focus on one aspect of war, right? It's a very narrow aspect of 
of war, militaries fight in all environments. So I, I just fell into like, wow, nobody's covering this. Although some people have written a book here or done this. I, I was able to just chart a path and then be given the freedom in a research center. So I, you know, I stood up the Modern War Institute at West Point and I'm now quickly becoming the urban guy writing about urban in, in all these different contexts and all these different types of urban areas. So then I, in 2018, it was time for me to retire as a soldier, right? So I didn't know what I was going to do. And my institute said, would you like to continue to research urban warfare? And, and, and oh boy, would I? So then I got to <laughs> actually do, so 2018, I became a a full-time researcher where I could study, because a lot of this is studying the past, right? The biggest predictor of the future is the past. Don't tell me what you think you're going to do. Let me show you what you already did in this situation, in this context, uh, or in this war, whatever. So then I got the the dream job of not only being able to fully dedicate my time to researching urban warfare, which is a very big term, um, but I got to try. I get to travel the world, walking the ground and getting that experiential learning, getting that um, seeing it through your own eyes aspect of it, and then process that back into content for other people to understand you've got sort of the dream job for a researcher where there's a lot of low-hanging fruit i'm sort of jealous but uh you know i, I want to understand to what extent is urban warfare a, a, a science because you know from from the i guess the question is let, let me frame it like this from from an outsider's perspective, I've been doing in, in preparation for this discussion. I've been looking at, at various battles in Iraq and, and so forth. And you know, if you look at the battle battle for Sada City, uh, you know, the coalition they they built up these concrete walls and they sort of methodic what seems to be quite methodically you know sectioned apart the city and very slowly overtook different pieces and when when you look at um retaking mosul the city was cut off and then there was this methodical push uh, into the west if i remember correctly and so i i sort of and then in other cases you know cities are completely bypassed so the question and i imagine straight away your answer is going to be no but the the question is, to what is urban warfare in a certain sense solved? Because because you have uh, these examples of of where there are just these methodical pushes uh, that seem very successful, or 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 is it just something that's chaotic? And these are just a few good examples of success. No, I think it's an an, an amazing question with 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 a depth of. Uh concern actually i studied this a little bit before i got out is there a military science um in there's a there's a cultural aspect of, to that it's people think of military sciences as something that's very basic um as in like tactics and weapons and things like that so it, it's almost got a, like an anti-intellectual vein depending on who we're talking about like military sciences right um and, and where other sciences or academic fields they have a body of knowledge which then gets built upon. So I could go down that vein. And now there's things called strategic studies that weren't around before in the international relations realms and things like that. I think it's very interesting to ask, is urban warfare science? And I think it can be. 
um, because given a set a set level of variables uh, and as a condition, if you apply these known variables in counter to whatever you're being presented with, there should be a, a predictable outcome. But the problem is that the science is implemented in a very um, constantly changing field of actors. So there, there's people that study this, right? There's game theory. There's, there's all these other aspects of, of the sciences of war. Um, I think in urban warfare, yes, absolutely. There are aspects of urban warfare that have already been solved, right? And this is the, but it's, it's, it's the problem is that both actors aren't um, at the level of knowledge as you would would imagine, right? In scientists, there's, there's some of the the actors that you're studying is is constant, right? It's you just gotta you gotta understand the the interactions, the relationships, and things like that. When war, because you have these all these three you know populations and variables, mm-hmm. could I narrow it down? And yes, I do that, right? So even in the Battle of Sadr City, I, I have my report shows that the actual solution that was created wasn't planned. There was no no scientist who said, "Here's the solution to your problem," based on based on the history, based on the variables of understanding our science of urban urban combat. In in retrospect, it should have been known that if. If your problem in, in your set conditions, right, you're not allowed to go into that city, which is the variable solder city. You can't just the problem I think is that based on the the people involved, the students of war, is that often they, they will not understand the conditions and will apply a different set of variables to what they think is the solution. And that's mm-hmm. where it always starts to go bad. In that battle specifically, now that we can do it retroactively, the political environment said you can't go inside the city, but your military goal was to stop the rockets from coming out of the city because mm-hmm. the rockets were hitting the international green zone. The military moved forward to fight the enemy who were launching the rockets and, and just happened to be somebody said, well, we put a wall around the city. It'll make it a lot harder for them to come out of the city and fire rockets. Oh, well, if you put a wall up, they also will resist it and present give away their advantages which is the urban the advantage of urban warfare is that the the guy defending it has a, a lot of tactical advantage well if you start putting up a wall he'll come out and fight you well then you can just shoot him those are all predictable outcomes but the problem is that th- there's this institutional variable which i spent a lot of time like could i give you an answer to urban warfare absolutely but you has to be on the context of the military, which on both sides, the political environment, the population. This is why I argue in a lot of my writings that it's the most complex. Um, but I would holistically go with your solution that it it, it, it is a science. Um, it is there are predictable outcomes based on the mm-hmm. you know the different variables of inputs and outputs. But the problem is is the misapplication of understanding the situation to apply the sciences. This is why urban warfare in, in, in just in talking about it is so hard for people to comprehend. Like, all right, I just said urban warfare and you have something in your mind that you're thinking about is urban warfare, whether it's Stalingrad or Mogadishu, Black Hawk Down, 
But urban warfare is literally the application of force in an urban environment. And it can range from counterinsurgency policing, um, like urban policing, to full out two armed nation states clashing in urban terrain. Well, one of the things that you mentioned, this is a weird thing to sort of um, to pull out from what you just said there. But, you know, you mentioned um, that it was predictable that people would come out and try to engage the wall and this sort of thing. And I guess that's one of the things that does make this a science, right? Because if, if you're if you're able, you're sort of making measurements almost, you know, um, you can make a prediction that this is going to happen and that's your hypothesis. <laughs> you put up the walls and out they come. Um, was it, So can I just go back and ask again, was that something in hindsight that, that people worked out or was it really a prediction that was made that if we put this up, this is going to be the response? No, no. And and even though I was there, this is the kind of one of the aspects of research is you almost have to remove yourself from the research. I was there. Um, but in researching it through qualitative research, it was literally just happened to be figured out as in one guy said, eh, we should probably start connecting these walls because concrete at that time of the war was being used as a stability creating effect, right? It's communities right gated communities work right because you can control the entries and exploits you can almost um, make a very large problem smaller by controlling the variables right if i can control the variables it eliminates them as one of the things that i had to deal with so if i put a wall around a any community i can control things that i want to control like the the weapons coming in and out of the or the bombs coming in and out of the neighborhood well, in this war, in this battle, which had a set political goal, it was not one of the predictable outcomes or one of the even the the thought of solutions. It was a guy on the ground, a company commander said, maybe if we connect this wall, it'll it'll stop them from coming out in that area. And it literally was just, well, let's well, we started the wall there. Let's just keep building it. And that 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 predictable outcome, which is a lesson, right? This is what I do. You, you try to study all the complexities of a battle and say, okay, what do you want to learn from that? There's mm -hmm. thousands of lessons. But what is the lesson that you want to learn from that that could be applied to a different similar situation? Well, the lesson is, is putting a wall around somebody, if you have the time, is a great way to force your the person you're fighting to come out and fight you. Because in some situations, the goal is either just to get the enemy out of their defenses and, and come fight. So that's the lesson that I try to pull out of that battle. But it was not holistically, I can say with very strong confidence, any part of the plan to put a wall around a city so that they would come out and fight it. Mm hmm. Can I ask then, uh, sort of, I don't mean to jump around, uh, I don't want to confuse listeners jumping between battles, but <laughs> but did you, were you, um, so in, in this recent conflict in, we'll get into this in more detail, hopefully in a little bit, but just, just uh, sort of, a, sort of a short um, sort of look into this, were, were you able to predict that uh, the Russian military would pull out of northern Ukraine after they failed at that initial drop? Is that something that you sort of uh, saw happening before um, 
you know, were there, was there sort of signposting that was there that was obvious to you? At, so yes, I, no predictions, right? So somebody who can predict the outcomes of wars is probably a charlatan, right? Because there's just so many variables in a war um, on these echelons of political, military, and population that do, unlike any recent war I've ever seen, do get fully exposed in the in the war in Ukraine is what all three of those actors are doing, right? Had the political leadership of Ukraine left on day one, it didn't matter what the Russian military brought, the war was over. Um, and, and we've seen that in recent history, right? Uh, in Afghanistan, it's a huge component of how it all works. Could I predict and, and could I say, based on my understanding of past urban warfare or the requirements of major battles against cities, could I predict that Russia wasn't bringing what it needed after the first failed kind of course of action? So I've gotten a little bit of trouble saying that the Russian plan wasn't overall bad. Uh, nobody could have predicted that usually people try to analyze wars by just looking at the two sides, right? You got the Russian military, you got the Ukrainian military. Let's look at this on paper, right? That's that's kind of like a, a really bad scientific way to look at it because there's 3 million people that reside in that city that the Russian military is attacking. What are they going to do? Nobody could have predicted that tens of thousands of them would resist. Um, or the fact that chance does play there's there's actually like even if we do war games we'll roll dice as an element of chance because there is ab absolutely this aspect of chance and war but again based on the scientists i could tell you that after the failed attempt at the rapid forceful seizure of the center of gravity of the city of kiev which was the center of the gravity of the war that the Russian military had not allocated the required resources to take the city in a different way. Uh, but even that didn't mean that it was a assured outcome that I could predict that the, the Russians wouldn't achieve their goals because there are other battles happening like the, in a city not too far from Kiev in a place called Chernihiv that one again, that the Russians were, were halted and had they not been halted, they could have came and been that additional resource that the Russians needed in the Battle of Kiev. Absolutely, if you're depending on what the the operational plan against a city is, there you need certain variables, right? You need speed, you need force, you need air power. And as these things are starting to be taken away from the Russians, they'll have they had to go to a different model, right? Because there are different there, there's plenty of models that will work in urban warfare deciding on which one to choose. And, and these are the calculations of risk and all the intelligence that you need to understand both sides that went wrong for Russia. But once it, the first model didn't work, he could, it could have applied model B, which is a very heavy amount of force, a very high number of troops that I could say when, when, when option A, which, which based on all the scientists should have worked, didn't work go to option b and this might work but then as that plan was also stopped and then it was just starting to fall apart and that's when the predictions would would could be made on that they, they don't they haven't in order to execute plan b they don't have any of the 
resources that they need to do that. And they're not going to succeed in that if the Ukrainians continue to do what they're doing in all these other variables. So there was a certain level of redundancy built into the plans that may not have been obvious, uh, at least to me as I was watching. You know, one thing that I've noticed is because I'm in the West and, you know, listening and and, um, uh, watching predominantly Western media, there's a lot of talk about the things that Russia has done wrong and the things that Ukraine has done right. And so at this point, I'm not really interested in getting you know, further into that story that I already know about. I, I'm i curious, are there any things that the Russians military really did right and that the Ukrainian military really didn't do right uh, early on and, and sort of later on in the engagements? Are there any sort of really key um, points there that maybe I've missed um, uh, just through the, the media I watch? I know you don't know what I watch, but... <laughs> yeah, I think... So again, you know, as a researcher, I want to take out the, you know, the basically just the the conversation about it and study it from an actual action reaction things like that. So that's why I went to Kiev in June to study just a single battle, because the war you know, to understand wars it takes you know decades of research to understand every element of, of a war, and we can break. I mean, look how many books have been written about the Civil War. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of books and research and both qualitative and quantitative. In the first phase of this war, there have been two phases of the war in Ukraine. There's been the the Russian invasion to topple the regime of to topple the regime of Ukraine uh, and, and instill a Russian puppet and for it to become a, a part of the Russian Federation. And then there after that was that failed in April, another war was started for Eastern and Southern Ukraine. So in the beginning, in that first phase, um, what Ukraine did, could be argued did wrong, was not prepare for the invasion. Mm-hmm. So the, again, politics matters. In the Ukrainian political government, to include the president, chose to not get into defensive positions. It's, even in the city of Kiev, there's one brigade and they were not allowed to be out in position because the political apparatus who understands, who has many more considerations than people know, and then now in hindsight, one of the biggest was economic. Had had the country go, gone on a war footing before Russians crossed the line, the hit to the economic vitality of the country would have plummeted. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, we can second guess that in the president, with the parliament's decision, that had they shut down the country in October when the Russians were at their gates, it would have tanked their economy when they didn't have Western support or anything like that, right? And this is why understanding wars is different than understanding warfare. Warfare is the actual fighting. War is the actual pursuit of political goals in a conflict um, through the use of force or the threat of use of force. So, yes, you could say Ukraine made a mistake and made themselves more vulnerable and caused a lot of problems by not being in a defensive mindset earlier. Uh, You can argue, again, in hindsight, that that might have actually helped them as well because step one of invading the country is to hit anything you can 
with your air force or your fire. So if you're in, if the Ukrainians had been in position like around Kiev, which they weren't, right? I talked to the military leaders, are like, we weren't allowed to be in position, um, even in defending the city. Had they been in position, maybe they would have got blown up. Uh, so that's a really, so what did the Russians do right? Again, I think that the plan, given all the known variables and to include history of invading countries, Russia's plan wasn't that bad. A rapid seizure of an airfield to create an air bridge while you rush within 24 hours, very rapidly, multiple mechanized assaults onto a city to achieve your goal wasn't a bad plan. Uh, They successfully seized Hostomel Airfield. They successfully got to the outskirts of Kiev within hours from Belarus, Mm -hmm. from two different lines of attack. I give them credit for that. That those were that was a a rapid execution of a like we were talking about in the beginning, a very complex operation. They dropped over twenty to thirty helicopters into Hostomel within the opening moments of the battle and seized a critical piece of military infrastructure only ten miles from the objective that they wanted to hit. It was it, it was by chance. That, they, that plan was interdicted and then they couldn't respond to that interdiction um, of variables that would have been very hard to predict that the Ukrainians would fight, that mm-hmm. Ukrainian citizens would fight. Because on paper, there was one brigade, less than 4,000 soldiers protecting that city. And in my opinion, again, they didn't have to clear a key. They had to raise a Russian flag on top of the government building. They had to... F- force either kill President Zelensky or force him to flee. And then the most of the war, their political goal would have been achieved. The problem was that they that they weren't able to respond to the friction and the you know bad assumptions get made present when you when you actually put a plan into place. So I, I think the Russians' plan wasn't that bad. They just weren't able to then respond to problems. Uh, then there were some logistical concerns and things like that uh, that that played out. So is that a, a one? I I don't like putting out Russian successes because I'm I think this is a fight of good versus evil, um, like we were talking about in the beginning: ethical, moral, human rights, things like that that are really the guiding lights of militaries even that are told to execute a mission that element of is this a just war and that's its own field of study right um that human rights that does come through even when you tell soldiers to attack whatever it is that you tell them to attack i am pro-ukrainian because of that but i can also step back as a military researcher and say yes Mm -hmm. here are mistakes that ukraine made and here are the mistakes that uh, or successes that Russia made in their attempted military campaign. So on that note, how close did Russia actually, you know, I, I heard that they had personnel that actually entered the city uh, at various points. How how close did they get to, do you, do you have any idea of how things could have gone uh, along those lines? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, one, yeah, there, there was, whether it was FSB, uh, specimens and, and, and civilian closing, there was a, there's a, there was a fight going on inside the city clearly from a plan that Russia had resourced and executed. That was part of, they didn't have one plan. They had a couple plans, right? The, that in interior, um, take the city down from within aspect and, and to include rumored. Again, this is the hard part of studying this like this. Some of this won't be revealed for a long time. Rumored uh, like buying apartment buildings, inserting intelligence agents, you know, under, and it, that just didn't work. And they had a redundant plan, which was the, the, the top of by force, but you're right. How close did it get to Zelensky? I don't know. Um, clearly, they were inside the city having firefights with uh, security apparatuses and security forces inside the city. It just didn't, they didn't infiltrate the interior elements of the government enough to be able to basically topple it from within, right? Which is, they have in other, um, arguably in Crimea, uh, in other aspects of invading in recent history. I will say though the other aspect, which I, I, I firmly believe, the Russian plan, the other plan, which is to to do it by force, right, and the punch through the city and penetrate to the government building and raise the Russian flag. There is only a matter of a few hours in which that's how close they got to achieving that goal. So the fact that the twenty to thirty helicopters of special Special forces, airborne troopers, high-quality Russian forces were able to seize an airfield within 10 miles. They only needed to be reinforced by the ground invasion, the ground forces. They just they just needed to get to the airfield and do that link-up for the entire plan to work. The problem was that was separated by a few hours, and the Ukrainian, the enemy gets a vote. So the Ukrainians were able to then to drop massive amounts of artillery on the airfield and blow that element up and destroy the airfield. So you weren't, you weren't going to airland anything after that to the point where when the ground invasion linked up, great, you have an unusable airfield and the city has woken up and responded fast enough to where you're not just going to drive into the middle of it now. You're going to have to fight. So that that matter of hours, I think, is as critical as the field, however close they got to Zelensky and um, in, in achieving the goal, right? Which you have to look at wars as in the the political goals in which the military is trying to achieve. I don't know how to ask this question, but uh, so in your first drop, is is do you? Do you put yourself in the shoes of of the Russian VDV, the the people who were dropping in sometimes, and think to yourself, I I, I know, I know that there's there's the the moral position and and there's the ethics of what's going on, but if if we're just looking at the battle itself, you could have been born Russian, let's say, right? Um, did, is there some sort of a um, yeah, I don't know how to ask the question, but 
do you do you have some although you don't agree with with what Russia's doing do you have sort of some level of empathy as a soldier for the soldiers that that went in I, I don't know if this is a complex question to ask but um have you have you thought about this much at all or or it's not on your I mind I have actually yeah I actually have um and the, and like the unit that that seized Hostomel um it's a very similar to a unit I used to be in in the US military you know, a very special formation of very motivated, um, very committed, uh, patriotic, uh, you know, just raised in that way. Um, and to be known, you're given this high risk mission that's a no fail mission, um, that is going to be very dangerous. Uh, I related to that. Uh, and, and the airfield seizure is a mission that I actually trained for could understand, could actually visualize more so than maybe even other battles before I started studying urban warfare as a whole. But after the conduct of Russian soldiers, so things like Bucha, Mm -hmm. which really, really touched me as a former soldier, as a person in charge of soldiers in war, where if you don't have that ethical framework, bad things can happen there's always there are all kinds of bad soldiers in all militaries but the system controls that i mean i had psychopaths i had really bad people in my formations and i even had a soldier who who committed a bad act that i you know could be viewed as a as a crime but when you have a an entire military formation like hundreds of soldiers raping torturing um, committing genocide, uh, it really touched me as that's when I could separate any type of empathy for a soldier being assigned a task, even if you know, even if they're not connected to the political goals, but they're assigned, like we talked about, even a just goal uh, within their understanding, like even if they thought they were liberating, they're doing this special mission for their country. Once I started seeing things like Bucha and, and even worse things up to this point, I could completely separate and understand that we're not, I'm not like those soldiers. I'm I'm those soldiers were raised in a from birth with an under a dehumanizing of an entire another population and almost a rewiring of that human human feeling, right? The human rights that uh the empathy and all this, and there's the psychology of a psychopathy and all that. That, that I am more dislike those soldiers than I am like those soldiers. That must have been, I, I, I you know, I, I didn't really think through the question uh, that fast. So I, I sort of, I'm sort of shocked by your, your response. Uh, uh, what was it like? What was it like entering Ukraine? Uh, and, and what was it like speaking with people um you know what was that experience like? Uh, you know, because it was very fresh when you were there, right? The, these atrocities that, the, if you don't mind uh, speaking about, no, it. not at all. I mean, that's why I went um, because you can, uh, you, like we say, war has an enduring nature uh, that doesn't change, and then it has a, a constantly evolving character, right? The weapons, the methods, all this, but the enduring nature is human. So you can't really study wars without an understanding of all the human factors that go into it. So traveling to Ukraine, 
one, I had to, as a researcher, I had to have an understanding of, of, of the, the actual variables that are playing into the execution of the science. Uh, right. Uh, so when I entered Ukraine, it was very, you know, there, there's actually a little bit of the sombering aspect that I'm entering a combat zone, not as a soldier, but as a civilian. Um, mm -hmm. I had done that before, right? I traveled into Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, the interesting part about traveling into Ukraine was, again, interacting with the civilians, like in Bucha, where I wasn't talking to military personnel, right, which I'm used to. Even in Iraq, I'm talking to an Iraqi army soldier, a policeman, things like that. But now I'm talking to, you know, grandpas and kids and all this who now are wearing some type of a military uniform who who rose up and and were willing to, to fight for their way of life. To be honest, I had not experienced that in my 25 years of doing military stuff. Yeah, it's, it, it's of course happened in wars in the past with Poland and you know in Sarajevo and like all around the world. I just not I just not been face to face with that human element of where what I was studying wasn't just military action against military action. It was a complete population that was basically somebody was trying to extinguish not just the actual killing of people. They were trying to extinguish their their actual way of life. In you know in Iraq, I had, like the parades I talked about. I, I had seen the flip side of that right of living under that for so long and then being relieved of that but when i entered ukraine to 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 talk with people like in bucha who even through their atrocities were still preparing to fight and i was there to study what had happened but i couldn't be removed from what is happening the air sirens happening every day the kids playing in the streets and having to respond to an air siren as missiles were coming in or just living in the rubble uh, of this massive act of violence that had been imposed on them and how that that will be generational um it was it was really surreal i mean there were things that were more comfortable for me right and uh, in, in talking through the tactics and the the how things were fought but you can you're not being to get that face to face with the actual human element of this uh or understanding almost the the very high cultural aspects of again, the Russian military inserting into this, their foreign land of Ukraine's where they would destroy things that just didn't make sense to destroy. But understanding again, the human element of this, they were destroying things that, that were counter to their entire upbringing and way of life that the Ukrainians lived better than them. So they would destroy houses just because it was a, a nice house or they would run over luxury vehicles just because it was a, a luxury vehicle that was counter to their way of thinking that the Ukrainians were this subservient people, poor people that lived like, you know, like their poor population when they, they weren't flourishing as, as an economy, you know, getting those aspects was, was very touching. And every place I visited, it did leave a mark on me, right? we're all human, but traveling around to all these different communities within a single battle, right? I was there to study the battle of Kiev, but understanding cities, right? Cause is that cities are civilizations. They actually share the root called Latin root with civilizations. Cities are 
populations of communities living together for multiple reasons, but traveling to each and one of these separate civilizations that make up the actual city of Kiev, Bucha or Pin, Bravari, and to hear those human elements and to understand the human factors of the fighting was was amazing and, and probably a once in a lifetime opportunity for me to go in when it was that fresh. Although, you know, to be real, uh, time had passed between the, the the last Russian withdrawal in April and my visit in June, but it was real enough, and the war was real, right? I had never been to a, an entire country at war, mm. even in Iraq you know, or Afghanistan. You could visit places where they had no awareness, and it wasn't changing anything that they did. That there was fighting going on over over you know hundreds of miles away versus in ukraine based on the way the war has fallen out there you could as soon as i crossed over i hit a checkpoint of citizens just concerned about it was as soon as i crossed the border an entire country at war and how it rippled across every facet even if they weren't on the front line because of the ways of missiles, the 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 actual economic burden, it was of that many people, millions of people on a war footing. Even having been in Iraq multiple times, to to feel that in a different way was was was, you know, it's hard to put words on it, but it was it was amazing. Did you visit multiple cities? I mean, Bucha was famous it it was on the news and and really caught people's attention but do you have a feeling for how widespread i mean you mentioned houses being destroyed and other atrocities rape and so forth but do you have a feeling for how widespread butcher like behavior was uh across the country and across the the areas that were were taken I can't say across the country since, uh, uh, you know, up front, like I said, I, I visited, I went from Poland through Lviv, spent time in Lviv, straight into Kiev, and straight into visiting all the different, we call it peri-urban, right? The outside of the urban. Kiev is a, a city of cities, just like most major cities of the world, right? So the five boroughs of New York City, things like that. I traveled to almost every area in which heavy fighting or moments that add up to the the overall analysis of the city happened so Bucha was one of the first places i interestingly that i went to just based on my guest mm-hmm. Bucha or pin moshun bovari brobyansk um cities in the north all around in every location that I went to where Russians had been stopped. You could say Russians occupied, but anywhere a Russian had been stopped, I was shown the atrocities that the Russians committed. Um, whether that was the rape uh, of a baby till the baby died, but uh, that location, or a rape of a, a, a woman in, in front of her husband and then the husband killed. That was outside of Bucha. So really every location that I was taken to, to understand moments of battles, um, like the the 300 or the hundreds of bridges that were blown 
every bridge I crossed was basically destroyed as they were trying to de- keep the Russians out. But every time any location where a Russian was stopped, they went on, on like this evil horde and just did massive of things that I that I, that I know that aren't just war crimes and the law of war, but are crimes against humanity and literally can be defined as genocide because they were trying to really destroy what they found. They, they're trying to destroy Ukrainian as an ideal, as a people. Um, they were just set free in every spot that I visited around Kiev. But I can't say, although I, you know, because of the nature of this social media war, I think this first <clears throat> omnipresent, omni-accessible war, you can see it happening anywhere a Russian occupation has happened. Uh, the, whether it's torture, rape, mutilations, you name it, um, psychological warfare. But everywhere I traveled around Kiev, it was it was not just butchered by chance. From your experience as a soldier, one thing I'm kind of curious about is, you know, I wonder what messaging Russian soldiers were receiving, which allowed, you know, which pushed them into this position where they're able to commit, you know, where you're able to dehumanize the enemy. In your own experience, how you know you could be, because you were a platoon leader and, and a commander in, in various capacities did how quickly can things get out of hand if you don't put your foot down on, on it you, you know so, so I, I i guess what i'm i want to understand to get a better understanding of is this is this something that sort of can accelerate quickly in a professional army as well and, and, you know, it's something you have to stamp out because, you know, I, I imagine when you're going through training, you, you want to train someone up who's able to commit, you know, ex- extensive violence in the correct, in the correct places. And, and you want to be able to act effectively and, and quickly and, you know, really with violence of action. But then you also at the same time want to prevent war crimes and, and you want to, um, you know, create soldiers that have empathy for the civilian population and so on. So, th- this is a long question, but let, let me let me let me just say it succinctly as, you know, is is this is there any way that you you can see this as, as something that can like rapidly get out of hand in a, pl- in a professional army, or is this something that seems more baked in? Or yeah, I I, I, I hope that's no, clear. I, I I understand the question and I've gotten it in the past, to be honest. Um, and, and make no mistake, the US military has had its black marks in the field of war crimes or bad, really bad things happening, even at a more than just one soldier, rogue soldier, which is why I didn't, I was strong against having an understanding of what happened in. Butcher, Pin, Bravari, all these places, is it wasn't just a rogue soldier or a rogue unit. Um, it was, I agree, baked in from long time ago. And it is also baked in at echelon. Bad people join the military. Bad people join all militaries. But the 
And then some of them will be baked into doing evil things when given the chance, right? When given the autonomy and the kind of caught blanche to commit violence. But this is where the military as a system and, and just not doing war crimes is, 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 is not the way the system is built. The, well, the system is built within an ethical framework from the moment you join the military. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. Um, it's built in with a, a, which has to be in place, a criminal justice system for the military. It's a uniform code of military justice for us, the U.S. Army. That system is, it, it, it's implemented on day one, but it applies to in wartime as well. Um, it's in the leadership as well. I don't believe in that all things are the leader's fault, but bad things also get stopped at echelon through leadership. Again, in establishing the ethical framework of not just the military, but in implementing the values, going back again, I sign an oath to the Constitution and to the American way of life. So as a leader, as a brand new second lieutenant, that's the responsibility and the oath that I've taken. And that that includes, this is what we as a people do. This is what we don't do. And that gets you know, gets implemented down, but there is a moment in time when leaders in history have had to say, stop, this is not what we do. Uh, And this is why what Russians have done is baked in at echelon from bad soldiers, bad people that have, that not only have dehumanized Ukrainians, but have literally psychopathic tendencies of where they can do e- really bad things, which is a special kind of evil, right? Um, dehumanizing isn't tying people's hands behind the back of their head, uh, shooting them in the back of the women and, and children and old people in the back of the head, or literally mutilating and castrating um, soldiers you've captured. That That's baked in literally in a person's being. Uh, but there have been times, like I said, in, in American history where Units under stresses of combat, fed wrong information, allowed to allowed to create a, what a new right and wrong, a new things that they do have committed uh, bad things. But then there is always a guiding light, even in the worst, like the U.S. One of the worst situations for the United States military was the the massacre at My Lai in the village of My Lai in Vietnam. Even in that immense atrocity there were soldiers like a helicopter pilot who who saw what was happening and dropped his helicopter to get in the way between the soldier shooting at a running civilian that's the level of human nature that's built into the system even when there's a group that has been over whatever this context gone away and that's why again i have that allowed me to break any type of I'm not like a Russian soldier when it's it's endemic, it's systematic what they've done in every location. It wasn't it, probably ordered, if not ordered, condoned, and if not condoned, endemic in the way they do things, right? Go back to the, this is what we do, this is what we don't do as a people, as a Russian citizen. as a So when I'm an American citizen and wherever I was, I... I always felt like there was a right and a wrong. And in the military, we 
we do a lot with values and ethics of of the military profession that we that establishes right and wrong, but it's also rest on human rights and human values. Hmm. I I imagine if if you have a certain set of morals baked in that you can sort of perturb forces very slowly and gradually away from doing more harmful actions and sort of it's easier to deal with when it's at the, that that first level and then as things become get out of control then it must be much harder to be that soldier that drops down the helicopter and you know I, there's another aspect of this that sort of um for me sort of uh struck me and it's one of the things that interested me about your story as well because you wrote this mini booklet um that sort of caught people's attention in ukraine so so you have this i don't know if you you wrote it in uh in response to to this conflict in ukraine did you, did you write your mini booklet in response to this absolutely absolutely so, so the thing that sort of just you'll have to give sort of a, a very brief summary of what what i'm talking about but the, the thing that sort of caught me was on the one hand i saw civilians reading through this booklet that you had written which explains you know how to um how to defend your city against an invader and so I was, on the one hand i was very happy um because i imagine when you're stressed and and when when there's conflict and everything seems hope, hopeless getting out there in the street and blocking streets and doing this and that probably is um in terms of morale and, and and in terms of just just keeping yourself sane is very beneficial and i i imagine your booklet also was very uh, helpful um and, and was able to maybe saving lives and this sort of thing but on the other hand and this is this is not a criticism at all um it's just the way sort of i, I felt when i was seeing these pictures it made me quite sad that civilians had to read the book you know you know the, the, the there's you know that 18 year old kid who's just finished school and, and should be going to university or starting a job or you know their sweethearts on the other you know but instead they're reading this booklet about how to defend you know how to defend your urban environment and uh this this is just sort of a statement about how i feel but i wanted to lead into just a, a the question of you know, in Ukraine, there's two questions I, I want to ask if you can sort of package them together. Um, the first one is just sort of how, how do you have these same sorts of thoughts and, and, and uh, you know, do you have the same sort of mixed emotions since you're much more heavily involved and you visited the population uh, along these lines? And the other thing, just more practically, is Ukraine. in Ukraine, the men are not allowed to leave the country and, and so just a more practical question you know do civilians make good soldiers do they you know how useful are the territorial defense units and volunteers and so on um so, so sorry that's a very long question but <laughs> no it's a great one actually it's a great one with a lot of a lot of content there i mean the story of the the book is, is interesting like why me what, what makes you qualified as an expert to write something like that and give out guidance to you know an entire country so the quick backstory on the on the the mini manual for the urban defender on february 24th when russia invaded ukraine 
I watched it like everybody else did um, in the initial day, uh, initial two days, um, having an understanding now of what Russia was doing, which I felt at the core of my just being a person was wrong. Um, also, I want to separate the story I'm about to tell you has nothing to do with the United States Military Academy or any other institution I work with because I had to, I took a lot of professional risk in what I did. So on, on February 27th, as the war started happening, really, you now we're two days into the 26th, I think, I tweeted out, and this is the aspect of modern war, it, it, that I think has changed the character of warfare, right? We talked about that. that's always changing. The fact that I could tweet to an entire country. I wrote a, a, a tweet thread that said, if I was, as an urban warfare expert, if I was in a city like Keep, Maybe not. I don't think I even put the word keep in there. Here are the things that I would do. Um, seven steps. And, and interesting about our conversation about the science, it was literally just reverse engineering the science of attacking a city to slow down and take away what the Russians needed to do to get inside the city. You know, like go out and block the roads, park trucks in the road, uh, stay off the streets, attack from the buildings, make ambush areas and that thread went viral so it was seen by like i, I forget what the number is uh, four million people or something like that a single tweet and then as uh, that because that somebody listened to it or somebody heard that message i started putting out a series of tweets with diagrams because as an old soldier like you said i understood that people under stress well let me answer the civilian question first so also on February 24th, I saw on February 25th, the president instilled martial, martial law, like you said, no no male from 18 to 60 could leave the country. And then the messages that went out immediately on February 24th were go out and resist. The government issued your radio messages, uh, public statements, resist Russian invasion. This is a fight for our nation. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the, the clarity of the message. Nobody told civilians how to do it. They actually, the idea of territorial defenses had not yet been put in place. Um, it was enacted before the war, was starting to be stood up, actually wasn't a thing yet. Um, there were, millions of people were told to go out and fight Russians, but were not told or prepared in any way to do it. So that was kind of the, also the, the yearn in me as a, you're just a guy who knows a little bit about war, but also cares I too don't like civilians being forced to fight, but that's what Russia did when it invaded a country. Uh, nobody knew that the in, the population would resist. And that's actually an interesting study in total defense, civilian compliance, and the assumptions that Russia did when they invaded. But the civilians were resisting. You, know, They were making Molotov cocktails. They were doing these things, but nobody was giving them instruction so I can only imagine, as again, an old soldier, when civilians are told to go out and fight, and but not told how to fight, not told what to do, not told how to help. And, and I can imagine it myself in trying to protect my family with no military experience, not having a clue on what to do. Uh, and nobody was putting out that guidance. And I kept getting messages from people on Twitter saying, you know, the radio says go out and resist, says make Molotov cocktails. And that's about the extent of it. Uh so my tweets became diagrams of do this, 
don't do this like you know park a truck in the road but don't stand in a road and wait for somebody to come because you're just going to get you'll just get blown up um the tweets became the manual the manual became literally initially just the tweets put into a pdf of of re like you said like i said the scientists reverse engineering what i clearly saw was the plan for the russians to get inside the cities to rapidly get into the middle of them um with that without my knowing until somebody informed me the ukrainian military took my tweets and put them on an official ukrainian military website for resistors on what to do uh and then my manual was as i was developing it as i had more time like here's how to make water safe as people were, were without water here's how to build a fighting position inside of a building here's how to block a road effectively and then the book started getting printed off and you started seeing it across the entire country from mariupol to kiev everywhere because civilians were being asked to, to fight because civilians were being given weapons that's the other aspect that you might not understand that the ukrainian government handed out eighteen thousand weapons in one day and told civilians go out and fight uh and how my book i hope gave people and i if like you said if you just give them something to do in the psychological aspect of fighting that is control like look i i don't want to go fight but i, I want to help make bandages or make litters or um put up a, a block in a road that's that's helping prevent the russians from achieving their goals without actually fighting that if you had 10,000 people that would be very helpful if i'm the one brigade in all the cities across ukraine that's really trying to kill russians that are entering the city and i have 10,000 civilians that now are, are not they're now combatants so that's that's a clear in rules of war i too don't like that feeling of I just turned that civilian into a combatant who can be killed. Now, there's also the problem with Russians aren't following any law of war anyways, but giving people clear instructions of what to do, but also understanding, and this is the, the interesting part of the book, the book started being used by the military more than civilians. The book was written for civilians in the opening days of the war to help resist. And that resistance in there's actually a term for resistance, which is old school as well. Like what we're seeing in Kharkiv where civilians are resisting in occupied areas by resist. I mean, defend citizens of Ukraine needed to defend cities and not let Russians in to buy time for other things to happen. And that's what my book was about. The book was then published by a Ukrainian publisher in Ukrainian. It's now been, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies were distributed. Interesting in our talk about war in general, it's been translated into, I think, 12 different languages as this ideal of citizens having to fight for their country is not is not exclusive to Ukraine. There's actually lots of places around the world. If 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 a country that's much larger is able to I, I want to take that country just because they're smaller. And they can't do anything. I have a much bigger military. One, that's not the global international rules-based order that was established after World War II. But if Putin wants to do that, 
maybe other people will get that idea and do it in other countries of the world. So now my my manual, which has a limited use, <coughs> has been translated in all these different languages where it may have abuse in the opening stages of an invasion so the military can't rapidly achieve its goal because speed is very important to small militaries around the world, even though if they're bigger than the country they're invading to achieve their goal. I, I realize so I realize we're sort of at the end of the time um, and I, I'm about halfway through all the questions I want to ask you this is this has been really fascinating but uh, so uh, let, let me just ask um, so, so what I'll do is I'll, I'll jump off this topic and I just wanted to ask something that you've just sort of popped into my mind uh, so, so I'll ask one question and then I just wanted to ask some more personal questions, um, sort of your own thoughts about your career and, and this sort of thing. Um, so, so the first question I just wanted to ask, or the last question, real question I want to ask is, how important is this war for the world order and, and for smaller countries? Because, you know, that there is this you know, there's questions about what makes something a war crime and what, what makes a war legal and so on. And, and at the end of the day, I imagine part of that answer does boil down to whether or not you're able to enforce <laughs> the law. Um, and it's sort of worrying, I imagine, to small countries and large countries, but, but particularly small countries that if this if this is sort of if these sort of invasions are normalized then this could be you tomorrow um do you, do you have a feeling on is there a reason why this conflict caught people's attention does does this have a larger political is there a larger political meaning is there a larger political story uh with regards to just world peace and 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 Keep, keeping the world safe and, and stopping larger countries from sort of uh, taking advantage of their special privileges, let's say. Absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree or I wholeheartedly believe that this war in Ukraine has much more to do with than just Ukraine and Russia. Um, and that's with being a student of international relations, student of history in general, student of war, uh, geopolitics uh, of it all, it, and I'm not an expert in, in in much, but understanding that the our way of life, to include in America, rests on a global international rules based order, which has allowed us to flourish as around the world after the last world war, um, after that last like the entire world implication war of World War II, both by stated word, by treaties, by documents, um, and by almost jurisprudence, just the way we do things, they're, they're established a global international rules-based order that has allowed for all forms of national power to basically continue and for civilizations to grow like we have. Um, most people don't understand that there's you know, there's four forms of power, right? There's diplomatic, information, 
military and economic four forms of national power like and we're a superpower right and the united states is a superpower because of those four forms of national power diplomatic information economic and military it's not just because we have a, the biggest and the best military in the world which we do but it's because of the economic vitality all of this that rest on this global international order especially with the global economic connectivity that has been created because of modernity um what russia has done by decision for whatever reason and, and you could go into that vein i'm not a russia expert but to invade another country and just because they're more powerful literally goes against everything post-world war ii but also would if it was allowed to go unchecked by not ukraine but by the world it then would rewrite what is okay for bigger nations to do. Uh, and it has literally life-changing implications. And most people who just haven't studied it or, or, or can't connect those dots view it as, you know, it's, it, it's just something that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a border dispute between, you know, somebody that used to be part of the Soviet union. That's not, um, you know, irrelevant of even the history of democracy, the history of the United States, in, in wanting to be free and all this. Um, absolutely, I think it's it's a much larger issue and could be a, not only upsetting the global international order if allowed, if Russia was allowed to do what it did, although you know, that war was won, doesn't mean their their active aggression doesn't need to be checked and continue to be checked. Um, it could be the start of something much more worse, right? I'm not, nobody can predict the future um, and people who tried to predict World War One, World War Two, would have been grossly wrong in the both the the actual enduring cause of the wars, the major wars of the world, but also the triggering event, uh, which are separate. I I strongly believe, and why I took a lot of political risk, even in the things that I've done up to this point, in supporting. Ukraine in even my my expertise and in, in, in the statements I make in public are because I do understand it as a much more global possibilities if Russia was allowed to continue what it's doing because it would not stop at Ukraine it and we believe that because we've formed this this alliance of NATO that we we would stop it if it went here or there I actually just I think that that's rubbish as well. If we establish these laws, this book of what is right, mm -hmm. what we will allow, or what we won't allow, in, in some ways, and nuclear weapons do play into that. We're also then almost going against what we say was by saying, well, because Ukraine is not part of NATO, we have to allow this. No, this is about the, the, the like the first line of the book is that we're not going to let people with bad intentions take smaller people entire populations commit genocide commit you know all these things we're not going to allow that in in our view of the world i so, i yes, have more answer, sorry the answer is yes the answer is yes <laughs> i i have more or less endless questions that i could ask you but but let me let me let me wrap this up with just a few quicker questions just uh, more about you so so yeah. 
just to to get it more of a picture for your personality although, although I think we've touched on quite a lot <laughs> in the discussion I uh just curious if you compare yourself today as a soldier today to that soldier who entered that first week of combat that that heavy drop uh, how, how do you compare how, how do you compare as a soldier i know you, you've retired as a soldier but what's the difference today uh, compared to back then yeah i so back then i had an idea of what what uh being a professional soldier was um, about being you know physically fit um expertise in my in my tactics and the in the level i did now i've understood what other officers have understood and i didn't at the moment that that ideal of being a warrior scholar in the intellectual broadening of my mind was as important as the the daily physical activity that I, I i valued so highly which was which showed out on the first day of the war to be very important and but i wasn't the warrior scholar that i am now as in my desire to understand the wise to it all that allows junior leaders to connect we call it a bridge between tactics and strategy you know the actual little action you're being told to do to be able to connect that to geopolitical all these other aspects there are some officers that i highly respect who from their start were those leaders are readers um that learning is living that were actually warrior scholars that i was not back then that i should have could have been uh but for a whole host of reasons of who i was at that moment i was not is there do you miss anything from before you were retired is there is there any aspect of the job that you you really wish you could jump back into oh absolutely i mean many soldiers miss two things i think one thing it's we call it flow which is to be given a very high risk job um for a very significant reason against a worthy opponent where the 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 end result is not set in stone um it, there's a really good book called flow um i forget the guy's name it's a psychologist when it's actually it, it leads to happiness when you have this this activity in which you're engaged in an in a skill that re that requires study and constant study and advancement against a worthy opponent who gives you timely feedback so that's the aspect i missed that aspect of, of of being given that level of work against a that requires a lot of work to develop expertise against a worthy opponent and then the other aspect which has been written about a lot is is the the bonds uh, humans need tribes we need community we need family being a soldier you get a war family um that you're willing to die for and we call it cohesion we call it a, your primary group cohesion it sebastian younger has written about it it's called you know the cause of, it's a very tribal aspect and even now as as a civilian i know i need that i need mm -hmm. um purpose meaning community family 
in the in the military you're given that at a level that you can never achieve but that's okay uh i miss that brotherhood that bond with with people i still have it outside of the military but you'll never have it at that level hmm. i often wonder about this uh how it compares to just you know camaraderie and team sports it must just be so much deeper it must run so much deeper when you're living with people you're going to combat with them you're you're involved just at a completely different level let me let me ask uh rather than getting running away along that line <laughs> which we definitely could let me let me end with the following question what do you wish civilians understood about war and and what do you wish civilians understood about what soldiers do and that's hard um i wish civilians understood that war is a necessary function it, it just is i think i i i strongly think having a military prepared to fight for the values of a nation is a necessary requirement um you know, i'm a realist in my in the way i think um and i think that's that's the history of man the history of of humans is that you don't have to be at war but it's a necessary function of of, of protecting uh a way of life but it is always political so i think civilians around the world just because they don't it's not what they do can't connect wars sometimes to the political reasoning of the actual functions and i think the iraq war taught the american population although it's night and day to vietnam where you could support soldiers but not support the war but even in that now in revisionist history people can't remember the political reasons for war in the moment and as and they do change even when you're conducting a war the political goals can so that's really hard and, and i think the only way you get to that is literally in in what we value in education and in in civics classes and social studies classes and things like that being able to connect the the actual political reasoning and underpinnings of a war throughout the entirety of the war but we want to simplify things. Civilians want things simplified for them. Uh, and that's its own line of discussions, I'm sure. So what do I want people to understand about soldiering is that soldiers aren't separate than civilizations. Soldiers are the actual people. Uh, it And there is no separation between um, the soldier. They, We, the U.S. military, take a, a huge efforts to make sure that especially in the all voluntary force but even in a when a call up of citizens it is the nation at war it is that is not a soldier is not something separate than someone's community or or themselves that is actually part of us that's fighting um and, and i think that's sometimes in time gets separated um, it's a it is us that's fighting it isn't just a a job it's actually somebody fighting or the community, or the American way of life. Even if the mission, it's really hard to connect to the American way of life, the soldier is fighting for complex reasons, but they're really, the reason that soldier is there is for the American way of life. 
I suppose our lives have become to, to a certain extent sanitized away from, you know, this is something that happens over there for many people. And uh, so I, I really appreciate the answer. And it's, it's been an absolute pleasure, John. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome back anytime. In fact, you, you'll have to come back again because <laughs> this has been fascinating. And I've, I've got a lot of questions to ask. So it, it, it was absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.